Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Paul Åster i samtal med Hans Olav Bränner. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Well, Paul, welcome to Sweden. Thank you so much. You've had a pretty tight schedule here, I know. It's been busy. I've been talking and talking, and I hope my voice will hold up for another hour or so. Uh, it's been nine years since you were here last, uh, and during that period you've published uh, six novels. Uh, your collected poems and prose have been published as well, and you've written articles and even made a movie. So we have a lot of catching up to do. It's been a busy time, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> But every 10 years, does that suit you, coming to Sweden? Ah, I would like to come more often, but I can't. I have a, a life to lead, and uh, it would be nice to travel constantly, but uh, I've enjoyed it this time particularly. The weather has been so beautiful, and um, I've had the most delicious food also. So it's been a very nice day. Okay, busy, but good food. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Mm. That's good to hear. Uh, we're going, you're kind of uh, between two novels now in Sweden, uh, Invisible and Sunset Park. You're satisfied with those two? Well, one is never satisfied. I think maybe that's why you keep writing more books, try to do better next time. But uh, they're already both well behind me. I'm not thinking about them anymore. Okay, so we shouldn't talk about them then? No, we could talk about <laughs> anything else, but... Um, it's, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, because I've been working on something new now for quite a while, and all my thoughts are concentrated on what I'm doing today, and yesterday is already forgotten. Okay, but could you say a couple of words about what you're doing now? I think I read in a Swedish newspaper that it has something to do with your own body. Uh, well, it's, it's hard to describe it. I'm not done. I don't really want to say too much, but it is an autobiographical piece but it is certainly not an autobiography. Um, and uh, uh, yes, it has a lot to do with my own physical existence, which I think is probably very similar to everybody else's physical existence. And therefore, even though I'm talking about myself, I hope I'm really talking about all of us. What it's like to inhabit a body for now 64 years. Um, so there are a lot of speculations and memories in this kind of swirling uh, uh, text, and we'll see what it becomes, because it's still very much work in progress. Okay. But what, what is it like then to have a body for 64 years? Um, it's probably the same as having a body for three years, or 20 years, or 50 years. Um, this relationship that we have with ourselves, I think, is um, quite fascinating, because we don't see our own faces when we're walking out in the world, do we? Um, I mean, I can see my feet, and I can see my knee and my legs and even my hands, but I would venture to say that if I were shown a photograph of my hand, I wouldn't be able to recognize it as mine, or my foot, or any other body part. The only thing that really identifies us as ourselves, and even to ourselves, is our face, and that's the thing we can't see. And um, 
So I think in some funny way, we're all alienated from ourselves, even as we inhabit ourselves. And finally, our identities are created through the eyes of other people. And I, I find this fascinating. And one of the little memories I, I, I uh, wrote down in, in the book that I'm doing is uh, something that happened to me when I was 14 years old. And uh, my father and his two of his brothers were in business together, and they owned uh, buildings, apartment buildings in New Jersey, mostly in poor black neighborhoods in Newark and Jersey City. And for one two or three week stretch when I was 14, I worked for him um, with the, with the uh, maintenance men. He had crews of carpenters, plumbers, electricians, fixing and painters, uh, fixing, repairing apartments all over town. And um, the men I worked with, uh, there they were two black men. They were extremely nice to me. We were in black neighborhoods, so we only saw black people all day. And after two weeks, I stopped thinking of myself as different from them because all I could see were black faces looking at me and they were very kind, smiling just the way you're smiling now. And I thought, well, I'm not different. It's not that I thought I was black, but I just forgot that I was white. And I disappeared for myself in the eyes of others. And uh, it's fascinating. And uh, so the book is about these kinds of things. Hmm. I see. Uh, Maybe we could talk a little about Invisible Sure, after sure. All. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> or this will be very short. Uh, the year of 1967, uh, what does that represent for you personally? Well, in terms of my own autobiography, it means I'm 20 years old and uh, a student at Columbia University uh, in those very tumultuous times. It also means uh, the war in Vietnam. 1967 to me also means the riots in Newark and many other cities across America. Uh, it means the Six-Day War in the Middle East. Uh, many, many things were happening at that, at that moment. Um, it was uh, invigorating and also difficult to be a young person then. Uh, life was very confusing. But we think of 1968 as the really iconic year, but you chose the one before. Yes, well, I mean, everyone knows about 68, uh, when many other things exploded, and certainly the Columbia University campus as well. But uh, I think I started thinking about writing this book as the year 2007 was approaching. And suddenly, uh, the papers were talking about the 40th, 40th anniversary of this, 40th anniversary of that. And uh, I st started thinking back to those days and, and decided I wanted to try to write a book set in that period. Um, it's not exclusively 1967, uh, because the person telling the story, or the primary person telling the story, is writing it 40 years later. But uh, basically, it is a kind of march backward in, in time. But uh, before this book, you, you had published a couple of books uh, about men preparing for death or reflecting on their own mortality. But now here you turn to the innocence of youth. Uh, how did that come along? Well, I think I'd had enough of old men. Um, yeah, there were the two little books that I wrote before that, which I think of as a, as a kind of diptych. And um, 
because they, they do go together, uh, travels in the scriptorium and man in the dark. And I very consciously uh, uh, use the same form for both. One takes place during the day, in one day, and the other's one night. Both of them have male protagonists who are old. The first in travels, Mr. Blank is probably somewhere between 75 and 80, uh, or even older. And then in the second, Brill is in his 70s. Uh, both of them are incapacitated in one way or another. And, um, uh, and they're both confined to a single room. Uh, travels scriptorium is one room in somewhere. We don't even know where it is. Hospital, prison, old age home, uh, impossible to know. And in Man in the Dark, um, he's in a bedroom in a house in Vermont. And I think of it as uh, the day-night diptych. And after I was done with the, the, those two books, I, I realized I, I wanted to start thinking about other things. But what were the starting point then for this novel? Which one? Uh, Invisible. Invisible. Well, I think it was thinking about 40 years earlier. Um, and then uh, rushes of memories came back to me. And, um, and so even though this book has nothing to do with my own life, I mean, it's absolutely not autobiographical, and none of my books is, but there are places that come directly out of my own experience. You know, the Columbia University campus, uh, the Butler Library, uh, which is a huge library with over a million volumes in it. Um, incredible building. Incredible. You've seen it, yes. Yeah, I've yes, seen it on yes. the internet, but yes. it's, uh, <laughs> it's an incredibly <laughs> That's enough. pompous building. Yeah, uh, it's also. incredible. Um, and um, the whole neighborhood of Morningside Heights. Um, so, and the West, the, the, the West End Bar, for example, where I used to go as a student a lot, that, that figures in one of the scenes of the book. In fact, um, the apartment where one of the characters lives, Bourne, who's a visiting professor, I actually took from the apartment of my girlfriend at the time, whose father was a professor at Columbia, Morningside Drive, overlooking the park, I put the furniture in the same place where that furniture had been. So there are all these personal, geographical, and spatial um, elements that come directly from my life, and then everything else, the story, is completely invented. It was also in 1967 that I went to Paris in, in the fall. And um, so I have Walker, my young protagonist, going through the same neighborhoods where I went, living in the same hotel where I had once lived. Um, and uh, it became uh, very vivid for me because I, I, I knew exactly what I was talking about, where I was spatially. And then, uh, then the story unfolds out of all that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, of course, this isn't your life. But using those elements from your own life, is that just so that you don't have to do research? Or, or does it, what no, happens? No, 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 because, no, 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 I see, that's not how it works. Um, you know, books come out of uh, deep inner places inside you. Um, most of the work you do as a writer is unconscious. 
it's not to say there aren't you know many conscious elements in in you know fixing prose and and so on but the drive to write a story comes from mysterious places you never know why you're writing this particular story something's compelling you to do it so you do it um so you know, you plunge in and you, you, you start writing and then the characters start speaking to you. They, they become more and more alive, more and more uh, tangible almost. And uh, if you can listen to them carefully enough, they'll tell you what they have to do. And then you, 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 you write it down. It's almost kind of inner dialogue with ghosts writing a novel. Yeah. Wow. We'll, we'll soon turn to Adam Walker, but Paul Auster of 1967, he's a young man who's determined to become a poet, right? I was writing poetry, um, not so good, uh, wasn't very good, but <laughs> I, I was writing it. I was also trying to write prose, um, fiction, but it wasn't very good. What was wrong with your poetry then? Uh, it, was too, uh, it was too complex, too ornate. I haven't found a way to do it yet. It would, it would take me another year or two before there were any poems that I wrote then that I, that I thought were decent or publishable. But those early struggle uh, years were just trying to learn how to write. And of course, most of my time was spent reading. I was uh, literally eating books when I was 20. Um, I can't uh, quite comprehend the, the, um, the, the volume of literature that I consumed in those years, say between 17 and, and 25, it's, it's stupefying. You know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. Um, uh, poets, prose writers, works from all periods. Uh, so so before you, you leave for Paris, you kind of read almost everything. Well, I hadn't read everything. No, there was still much to go, but I'd read a lot. Um, and then I, I did go to Paris. I, 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 I wanted to leave uh, for a while. The, uh, the scene in America was very ugly then. The war was becoming very uh, omnipresent. And um, there was no way to have another thought except to think about Vietnam. Uh, the, the escalation was growing at a very rapid pace. You know, so many people were being killed, and we, you know, the young men of that period, we were all uh, uh, subject to the draft. The minute we got out of college, we were going to be drafted. And um, so this was an, a pe very present. People fear. took moral and political positions very early, mm -hmm. and uh, yes, of course, there were some people who believed in that war and wanted to fight in it. But the people that I knew, and myself included, we were very, very, very much against it. And, you know, the position was either, you know, go to, go to jail. I mean, that was it, or run away. And I wasn't going to run away. So I was, I was pretty much thinking, uh, after I graduate in two years, I'm going to go to jail. It's not a very pleasant way to imagine your, your future. Um, anyway, I thought a year in Paris would be exciting and interesting, and I signed up for what they call a junior year abroad program. And I got to Paris, and um, the, and I've written about this in hand to mouth also, this, this particular period. 
the um, head of the program from Columbia was not a very nice person. And for some reason, we got into conflicts. And I wanted to take certain courses. My French was very good at that point. And he said, no, 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 no. The program has grammar, grammar, grammar. And you can't, you can't take the things you want to do. And I was so angry. I just said, all right, if you want, let me do what I want to do. I quit. And I walked out, and I quit being a student, which was an insane thing to do, talking about the draft, which is looming up. So if I quit college, the draft would be writing to me within a few weeks or months. But I was young, and I was stupid. And I was also extremely happy. And I was living in a cheap little hotel. Uh, it cost almost nothing. And I was writing my poems. I actually also wrote a screenplay in that, in that, in that room for a silent movie. Um, and, I was trans and I was translating French poetry. And I, was, I, I felt more free and alive, I think, than I'd ever been in my life. Well, that was probably in July when I, when I quit. And then the months ticked by, and it got to be August, September, October. And uh, my uncle, someone who was very close to me, my mother's sister's husband, who's a poet and a translator, he started calling me, always in the middle of the night. What are you doing? Why are you there? Don't you understand that you're going to get drafted if you stay there any longer? And uh, you, you have to come back. And I said, no, no, I'm going to be fine. But after a while, he wore me down to the extent that I said to him, all right, I'll go back and I'll talk to them about uh, the people at Columbia and see what, see what we can work out. Maybe there's a way I can continue studying in Paris or something. So I did go back, and I had a conversation with a dean at the, at the college, Dean Platt. You remember the I remember name. his name. <laughs> well, because he was such an interesting person. And, and the following year, when Columbia exploded, or the spring, it, wasn't, it was six months later, when Columbia exploded, he quit and, and joined. Uh, he started working for the UN. He was, he was a good man. And this is what he said to me. And I have to try to convey to the people in the audience, uh, especially young people, how conflicted relations between young people and older people were at that time. There was a, 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 a wall, mostly, between the 20-year-olds and the 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds. But this man was different. And he just sat there and he said, look, I know why you're doing what you're doing. And if I were you, I would want to do that too. Sure, every, everybody wants to live in Paris. And, uh, but I know your feelings about the war. I know what your position is. And so this is what I offer you. And this was halfway through the first semester. He said, if you agree to come back now, we'll reinstate you as a student. You just enroll in courses. I'll make sure you get in to the classes. Just catch up on the work. You can do it. And, and, and you'll be a full-time student as of this minute. <laughs> he was so nice, so wise and kind to me that I said, OK, I, I agree. I accept. <laughs> so that's how I wound up uh, returning to Columbia. And, and staying on for the next 
uh, those two years. Of course, in the spring, uh, in Paris, the city exploded. And in the same spring, New York, Columbia University exploded as well. So no matter where I was, I was going to be in the middle of something pretty dramatic. But what was it like then to meet a person who accepted the choices that you had made? It was refreshing. It, it, it made me feel that uh, someone understood what I was thinking and not making fun of me. Because there was a lot of uh, just resentment and bad will. But he had none of those things. And at this time you didn't uh, fulfill your father's dreams by my, your choices? Uh, my father's dreams? Yeah. What you did didn't correspond with his dreams. No, but at that point, uh, I was still a student, so he, he wasn't interfering. And he never interfered, actually, my father. He was just always confused that I should want to do what I was doing. It just, it just didn't make any sense to him. And I understand, and especially the, now that I'm so old, I mean, I'm almost as old as my father was when he died, um, only about two years younger. Um, he must have just been befuddled. He thought, well, here's this bright boy. He's going to this great university. He, and, and so what you do in life is you work, and you, you make money, and you try to be successful. This is the normal American way of doing things, isn't it? And I, I wasn't interested in any of that. <laughs> he just never understood. But he wasn't mean about it. He just was puzzled, mm. that's all. Adam Walker goes to a party. It's a very fascinating party, and we have to talk about it because we, we can't talk very much about what happens later in the book because then we give away too much, I guess. It's true, that's true. We could talk about only the, only the first part, I think, or even the first part of the first part. Yeah, and, I, and I've been wondering, because I've been doing a lot of uh, writer interviews, and we, we, usually we could talk a little about this and that on page 211 and mm, stuff like mm. that, but for some reason we can't with your book. I don't know why. Uh, no, no, there's something uh, um, that gets unleashed, and once, once it's unleashed, um, it's a storm. And I don't think you can pick out individual sentences without um, delineating too much about what's going on. So let's start with the, the first part of the first part then. Okay. He, go, <laughs> he goes to a party, uh, which kind of determines the course of his life in a way. Uh, what happens at this party? Well, our little hero, narrator, protagonist, whatever you want to call him, Walker is 20, and um, he winds up at a, at a party in New York, in Manhattan, downtown. He's a very, very shy kid. Um, he doesn't even know why he's there. Someone invited him, and he went along, and, and, um, and as he's writing 40 years later, he can't even remember who the person was who invited him, why he was there. But at this party, uh, two people start talking to him. Um, a man named Rudolf Born and uh, his girlfriend, Margot. And they're, they're both from Europe, France. And they're older than, than Walker. Uh, Born's about 36, Margot's about 30. And they're, um, they're very sophisticated people, uh, cosmopolitan people. The kind of people Walker has never met, doesn't know anything about them. And um, they, um, they, 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 how shall I put it? 
they, they befriend him, but in ways that are very ambiguous and, and confusing. And uh, little by little, Walker becomes involved with the two of them. Uh, born as a kind of bizarre angel, uh, as, as Born is proposing to start a magazine and make Walker the editor, and then, and then Walker gets involved sexually with Margot when, when Bourne is away. Um, he gets dragged into this mess. And then um, by the end of the first part, something very unexpected and shocking happens that um, completely undermines Walker's faith in himself, I think, more than anything else. And um, I don't know if you want to say more about it, do, but I think that's about as much as I want to say. Yeah. yeah. Am I the judge now, actually? Yes, yes. You're the boss here. Mm. Yeah. How many have read the book <laughs> by now? I saw a lot of people in the queue yeah. who were buying just that book. So. Yeah. So not so many hands went up. So let's not give away too much. No. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the first part of the book is understand the, the word right, conventional. conventional. Uh, and afterwards, something happens, of course, um, like a Chinese box or whatever you call it. But was that your intention, that something was going to happen, that you were, were going to, to twist the story? Or, or was it a possibility of you for you just to go on like a regular novel? In a oh, way? No, no, no. I, I knew it was going to be this way, divided into different parts with certain kind of leaps between the parts, different, um, uh, different narrative approaches for each part. Now, that, that's how I wanted to do it from the beginning. So there are sections, uh, the first, uh, I can say this much, this first section is written in the first person, past tense. And then in the second part, a new character is introduced. Um, and, then, uh, and then we read the second part of Walker's memoir. But that's told in the second person, you, present tense. And then by the third part, Walker's writing in the third person, he. So each one of the three narratives by Walker is different. So you have I and you and he. And it changes, I think, entirely how one reads these parts by having these different uh, uh, persons. Because the I is a kind of projection it's outside the self towards another. I did this, I was there, and you're listening to me. But when you say you, you're talking to yourself. It's very private and enclosed. And then when you say he, you're turning yourself into another, and you're actually watching yourself out in the world of others. So each, each, each voice uh, creates an entirely different atmosphere. If we take a little jump now, uh, and if I'm not wrong, uh, Invention of Solitude is also written in two different ways. I did it, I did it. Um, and it was a very interesting and um, uh, almost shocking revelation. I wrote the first part of the book in the first person, very naturally, never questioning it. And then uh, when I started writing the second part, I automatically was uh, uh, continuing in the first person. And after writing 20 or 30 or 40 pages, I understood. I didn't like it. I don't know. I just thought it was not working. Something was wrong with what I was doing. And um, I stopped writing for a while. 
trying to figure out what the problem was. And then one kind of feverish night of thinking and, uh, uh, and pacing around a, a floor in a friend's house in San Francisco. I wasn't even home. I was visiting somebody. Um, I figured it out that, no, it couldn't be the first person anymore. I had to start writing about myself in the third person. And then once I did that, I would create a kind of distance so that I could actually see what I was talking about. And once I figured that out, then I was able to write the, the second part, and it went fairly quickly after that. Mm. Have you got any reactions from a reader about that? Do they miss the, the first person when they come to the next part? No one's ever said a word to me about yeah. it. No. But, then, but then again, I don't talk to that many people. <laughs> <laughs> then it's probably all right. Yeah. But going to a party in New York in, in 1967, not knowing who holds the party, but meeting some strange people, <laughs> was that very typical of the time? Yes, yes. I didn't go to too many of them, but a few times. And uh, someone would say, well, there's a party on uh, so-and-so street, and suddenly people would turn up. And sometimes there'd be scores of people. Sometimes there'd be 100 or 200 people in lofts or big apartments. and. Um, uh, it was all very confusing, I have to say, when I think back on it now. Mm. But would you, do you see yourself as young and naive during that period? Um, I think the older I get, the stupider I seem to myself when I look back on who I was then. Of course, when I was 20, I thought I knew everything. But in fact, I knew very little. Mm. In Invisible, um, there's a part, uh, I think we'll have to say that because it's very, very interesting. Um, you're, you're describing incest between uh, a brother and a sister. Um, without a guilt perspective, I'd say, um, what was it like for you to, to, to write that part? It was a very difficult. I, I think um, of all the things I've ever done, I think the two most difficult writing challenges I've had are making up the imaginary silent films for the Book of Illusions and writing them in a way that made them uh, uh, plausible and also interesting, if, if, if I succeeded in doing that. And then this, this passage, these uh, pages in, in Invisible, about this love affair between Walker and his sister, Gwyn, who's about 16 months older than he is. And that summer, in 67, they, they're sharing an apartment. And all, all these things happen. And uh, writing any kind of erotic passages is difficult. Uh, but this is particularly difficult, because you know this is the taboo of taboos. And I, I really wanted to try to convey how neither one of them felt guilty that they didn't feel they were committing any kind of sin or transgression against God or the law or, or anything. And it was a strictly private business. Because crimes have victims, and if there's no victim, and neither one feels he or she is committing a crime, what is it? So we're suddenly in a morally ambiguous space with this whole affair. And they know it's going to be limited. There's going to be an end to it when, when Walker leaves New York and, and goes, goes to Europe. 
And um, it was uh, kind of thrilling to do it, and, but, but very, very difficult because, you know, I didn't want to go overboard either. You know, I had to keep restraining myself. So at certain times, what I, do you I, I, I tried to, to make it funny too. I mean, it's not only uh, serious stuff. I mean, there are all kinds of whimsical remarks that come up too. Because sex is funny. I mean, no matter what you think. I mean, it, um, it's only, I mean, from the outside, it's funny, not from the inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could you elaborate a little on that? Use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> but what was it that you had to restrain from? Um, uh, you know, a, a kind of gushing romantic prose. I, I, I had to try to keep it down because he, who's telling the story, is so thrilled. I mean, the thing is so exciting for him. I, 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 I had to make it uh, uh, believable rather than just simply excessively... Um, uh, ecstatic. But did you yourself, through this exploration, reach any kind of moral judgment for yourself? No, and then, uh, not really, no. And um, later in the book, I mean, I guess I can talk about this, it's, it's then it's open to doubt whether any of this ever happened. And so many of the events in the book are thrown into question at some point or another. So what you think happened, what you think you saw, suddenly turns out to be maybe not at all the truth. And uh, the, the case of this affair with the sister is, is one example of it, probably the most important example. Mm. And also interesting, um, in America, when, when, when the book came out, and I, I did a number of interviews with journalists, and Nobody talked about it. I think they were too embarrassed to talk about it. And I, I remember... Um, they might have been relieved when they understood that it might not have happened at all. Maybe, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. But it, it was very interesting. I mean, I think uh, um, uh, the, the funny thing was, before the book was published, Siri and I, Siri, my wife, Siri Hustvedt, also a writer, as you all know, uh, she and I went to... Brown University to do some something, a, a human rights project with Robert Coover. And then Coover said, well, why don't you two give readings while you're here too? So I had just finished the novel and I thought, okay, I'm going to read it in front of the students and professors at Brown University and see what happens. And, uh, <laughs> and I decided to go right into the you know, the, 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 the night of the grand experiment that they, they do when they're teenagers. And I read it, and I heard a few students laugh a little, titter, with embarrassment at the beginning. And then everyone was silent, and the reading was over, and people came up to me and they said, very good reading, I'm looking forward to reading the book. <laughs> But no one said anything about what I had just read. And I, I felt uh, really amused by this. It's just too much for people to, to want to talk about. Mm. But did you feel the intensity of it as you were writing it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, James Joyce's idea that, uh, you know, you're sitting there uh, paring your fingernails as you write with dispassion, it just, that's not the case with me. Uh, I think 
I'm more uh, a kind of writer that Flaubert describes, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. And he's just exhausted every time he wrote another paragraph. <laughs> Do you still write on the Olympia writing machine? Well, I write with a pen, always with a pen, in a notebook. And then I type up on my typewriter. I'm happy to report that I've had it completely overhauled lately. Uh, it was in, getting in bad shape. But some friend of mine, by some miracle, was given a typewriter by a friend of his whose father had died, and this thing had been sitting in the closet for 50 years. Another Olympia, very similar to mine, but in much better shape. But I had the good keyboard, and I took it to the one man left in New York who fixes typewriters, and he, he took the two machines and he made them into one. <laughs> so it really looks good now. It, it's, it looks like a brand new typewriter. It'll live way much longer than I ever will live, yeah, <laughs> this typewriter. You mentioned that uh, the, the second most difficult thing you had written uh, were the silent film passages in, in this book. Why was that so difficult? Um, because trying to create uh, an experience of watching a film on the page in words, is it's, it almost seems impossible uh, because you know, film is a pure visual medium. And especially when we're talking about silent films, there are no words whatsoever. Um, and to try to give a reader a true sense of what it would be like to look at a film, and moreover, a film that doesn't exist, something that I had to invent, it was just very difficult because um, if I gave too much visual information, it would slow everything down, so you wouldn't feel that you're watching a film, but, but maybe a, a bunch of still photographs. So that's not the experience of looking at a movie. But if I went too fast, you wouldn't see enough, and, and you wouldn't really see the film. So each paragraph, I had to find the right amount of material to keep in and to take out, so that you felt uh, a certain kind of speed, the speed of the, of the uh, projector turning over the film, and, uh, but also enough slowness so that you could actually see it and not feel that you're looking at a blur. So it was difficult. Mm. But you, you think yourself also that you found the right paste. Well, I published it, you see, and I let it out of the house. So I think I did as much with it as I thought I could do. Mm. Whether it works or not is not for me to say. But among the, the hidden films of Hector Mann, there is this one film that uh, the, the protagonist uh, reaches to, to watch before yeah, things start to happen. Um, and when I watched your latest movie, I actually recognized a lot of things from that movie, from the yes. description no, of but, this film. In but the it's book. the same story. Um, you see, this film that I made in 2006, I don't think it was ever released in Sweden, Probably no one here. I has bought seen it, it in Sweden. You DVD, bought it in Sweden, yeah. a DVD with All right. Swedish and Norwegian and Danish subtitles. Okay, well I haven't seen this. It's a, it's a little little film with four actors called The Inner Life of Martin Frost. Okay, this is the story. I'll give you the story about why there's the same thing in the book and the same story in a film. It, it goes all the way back 1999, so it was about one year after I had. Uh, 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 released Lulu on the Bridge, the last film I had done. A German film company 
contacted me. And they said, we're making a series of 12 films about men and women, so-called erotic tales. Not pornography, just erotic stories. And a uh, half hour for television and film festivals. Series of 12. Would you be interested in doing one? I thought, yeah, actually making a 30-minute film might be interesting. So I sat down and I wrote the script, The Inner Life of Martin Frost, for uh, two actors and 30 minutes. I sent it in, they liked it very much, said, okay, we're in business. But then they started negotiating the contract and they said, um, well, this is how we'll pay you. We'll give you one third of the budget on signing the contract, one third when you start the film, and then the last third when you're done and we approve of it. I said, well, what happens if you don't approve? Well, then we withhold the last third. And so how could I sign this contract with my poor friend, the producer, owing people X amount of money that we weren't going to get? And a friend of mine, Hal Hartley, maybe people know who this is, an American filmmaker, had done one in the series, and they had indeed not liked it, and they had not paid him the last third, and he had had out of his own pocket to, to finish the film. And it was, he said, Paul, don't do it, just back out. These are not good people. So I backed out, and I didn't sign the contract. So I had the script sitting there, and, I, and then I started thinking to myself, gee, it would be really interesting to take the story farther and um, make it into a regular feature-length film. Um, because the thing ended at a very interesting moment, but then there's certainly room for a second and even a third chapter in, in the story. So I made a lot of notes about how to finish the script as a feature film. And then I put it away and I started writing the Book of Illusions, which took me about two years. And when I got to the moment late in the book when Zimmer, the narrator, gets to see one of Hector Mann's films, I thought, aha, Martin Frost. It actually works very well with the tone of this book. It would be a good uh, film to put in. My original thought was, I'll do the whole long version of it. But once I started doing that, it was taking so many pages to do it, <laughs> I realized I was destroying my novel. I mean, it was just too long. So I decided to go back to the early short version of Martin Frost for the novel, which seemed fine. And I was very pleased with how it worked out. And then I finished the book, and I wrote another book, and another book, and I was pretty burned out, I have to say. Um, because then immediately after I wrote Oracle Night and then the Brooklyn Follies, and I was really tired and I thought, what do I want to do now? I can't write another novel at this moment. I've just been working too hard. Oh, well, there's Martin Frost. Maybe I'll try to make the long version of that film. And so that's how it happened. I did. I sat down and I wrote the rest of the screenplay and managed to cobble together this tiny little production that was very inexpensive, shot in Portugal with a very small crew and four wonderful actors. And so the film exists, and you can find it. It's on DVD. Um, and I'm very happy I did it. It was, it was a wonderful time making that film. 
Yvonne Jacob uh, is in it, and uh, she's terrific. And David Thewlis, a wonderful British actor. And then Michael Imperioli, whom you might know from The Sopranos and other things. And then uh, Sophie Oster, my daughter, was played the smallest of the four parts. But making the movies, uh, what does that represent to you in your whole body of work? I think it's always been a kind of um, relief from the solitude of writing novels. I got into it very late. Uh, when, when Wayne Wang called me in 1992, uh, how old was I then? I was 45 years old. Um, most often, people don't get a chance to learn something new at that age. But I'd always loved films. And, and Wayne kind of drew me into the whole process. He wanted to make Smoke together. And so it was like going to film school for two years. I mean, we worked on it for two years together. And I learned a lot about how to make films. And I found it, it's, it's a very grinding and, and demanding to, to work on films, but it's also thrilling. And, um, and I think part of the thrill is working with other people, getting the chance to collaborate. And, um, you know, I am a sociable person. I like other people. And most of my adult life had been spent alone in a room. And then I understood, well, there's another way to tell stories in which you can actually collaborate. And I found it very, very engaging, and I enjoyed it immensely. I didn't want to do it always. I mean, I couldn't possibly just be a filmmaker. But I've, so I've made four. I've been involved in four films, and each one has been um, humanly very interesting for me. And I think it's helped me. I think I've learned a lot about myself and how to, how to, how to deal with other people. And uh, I have no regrets whatsoever. Some of the films have done well, some have failed commercially, but it doesn't matter because each experience is somehow very fulfilling in, in itself. Yeah. One of the things I remember from my years as a student in Trondheim in Norway 10 years ago is um, Blue in the Face. Uh, yeah, that was the second uh, yeah. thing I did with Wayne. And Lou Reed talking about Sweden. Yes, yes, yes. I like that very much. Do you remember what you said about Sweden? I remember it word for word, syllable for syllable. So you, you, you have it there? You want to read it? You could read it. Uh, it's very funny. I mean, this was... I was interviewing Lou Reed on camera, and he was uh, just... It was a completely improvised film, Blue in the Face. And so it's funny, too, because uh, I can't possibly recreate the craziness of Lou's voice and delivery. He says, I'm scared in my own apartment. I'm scared 24 hours a day, but not necessarily in New York. I actually feel pretty comfortable in New York. I get scared like in Sweden. You know, it's kind of empty. They're all drunk. <laughs> Everything works. You know, if you stop at a stoplight, I don't know what he's talking about. If you stop at a stoplight and don't turn your engine off, people come over and talk to you about it. <laughs> You go to the medicine cabinet and open it up, and there will be a little poster saying, in case of suicide, call. <laughs> you turn on the TV, there's an ear operation. <laughs> These things scare me. <laughs> New York? No. <laughs> I, well, there's a, funny, there's a funny footnote to that. 
the Swedish consulate in New York saw the film, and he was so upset. He called me, and he said, I want you to come to lunch uh, you know, at, at the house on Fifth Avenue, and I want to explain to you what Sweden is really like. And I said, okay, we're going, and Siri and I went, and we had, we had a beautiful lunch with the consul general of Sweden in New York, and uh, he argued vociferously about what a wonderful country he represented. <laughs> <laughs> Does it seem to have changed, do you think? Uh, New York or Sweden? Sweden. Well, I've never seen an ear operation on TV. <laughs> and I don't know what he's talking about, turning off your car at a stoplight. What no. is he talking about? Very specific examples. Yes, yes. Uh, no, no, Sweden to me has been um, always very enjoyable. And I've always found the people very uh, convivial. And um, I've always enjoyed being here. I haven't found that many references to Sweden in your books, but in the Book of Illusions, it's mentioned as a far-flung place. Oh, yeah. really? I can't even remember writing that. Yeah. Norway isn't even mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Man in the Dark. In a good sense, a very strange little novel. Uh, because, it, it's, as you said, it also takes place during uh, 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, and it's... Uh, things happening in the now, but it's more about the fantasy of an old man uh, lying in bed. How did you come up with that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. But there, there he was. One day, I heard August Brill talking to me, and um, I, I felt this tremendous kinship with this man um, who's, who's injured his leg in a car accident. His wife has died of cancer, and he's living with his grown-up daughter now in, in Vermont, and she's a college professor. And, um, and then into the house comes his granddaughter, the, his daughter's daughter, Katya, who's 23, and she's just been through a wrenchingly terrible experience when the, a, an ex-boyfriend of hers has died in Iraq in a gruesome circumstances. And so, as he says, you know, this is like the house of pain and sorrow and tears, and He's just lying in bed every night, unable to sleep. It's the book of an insomniac. And uh, so he invents stories to pass the time, so he doesn't have to think about the things that are really tormenting him. Yes. So a good part of the book is the story he's telling himself, which is imagining a crazy civil war in the United States. And, um, uh, and then at a certain point, it's a short book. I think it's 180 pages in English. So it's a book to be read in one sitting. Um, just the way, you know, it's one night of a man's life. It's just, it should be one little session for a reader to get through. And um, he comes to the end of the because story. Because no chapters. It's no just chapters, no. It's just a flowing, ongoing uh, narrative. And uh, he comes to the end of the, the story about the Civil War. And... And then he starts thinking about some other things. And then Katya, the granddaughter, has heard him coughing. And she comes in, and she lies down next to him. And they start talking. And he tells her the story of his marriage to her grandmother. And she never knew all the details. And it's this, um, I don't know, immensely tender thing. I mean, these two 
very wounded souls. They're both grieving, and then they, they find some comfort in talking to each other. The 75-year-old man and the 23-year-old girl. And uh, the book, I, I, yeah. I've somehow, I have a great emotional attachment to this book. Mm. Yeah. Because it's such a, 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 an emotional setting where she actually gets the chance to ask these questions. Yes. Uh, and you, you're, you're being struck by the fact that people know so little about their parents' lives yes. and their grandparents' lives. Yes, yes. Uh, but but she, she gets the opportunity to ask the questions. Yeah. And that's maybe a rare thing, I don't know. It's a rare thing, but this is a kind of a rare family. I think they've been through very difficult things and, uh, and you know, they've been very close. And she and her grandfather, they sit around all day watching films. You know, they're just kind of escaping from, from the world together. And, uh, but that conversation is very, well, it's important for him, but, but especially for her. And then in the morning, you know, the, the, the third person in the household, Miriam, the mother of the girl and the daughter of the man, comes in. Um, relieved because she had looked for Katya in her room and she wasn't there. She's fallen asleep and Brilla's just lying there watching the dawn come and thinking about all kinds of other things. And then Miriam comes in, they start talking about having breakfast. Mm -hmm. And somehow breakfast after a night like that is, is like living in paradise, you know? Just the simplest human thing you can do make some food and begin the day, uh, it becomes, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the best thing you can possibly do. Mm. Yeah. When Brill lies in bed, he's imagining uh, an alternative America. It's kind of a contrafactual story yes. uh, about America being uh, in a civil war. The, the, uh, the trigger point was the election of 2000. And um, uh, because I have to say, when Bush stole the election, it was a, it was a coup. I mean, we lived through a so-called legal coup in the United States. Gore won, and the Republicans stole it. And I thought the country would be, go crazy. I thought, th I thought there would be fighting. I thought there would be complete chaos and disintegration. Of, of American life for a while until this thing was settled. And no, everyone just sort of sat back and accepted this with a passivity that, that makes me sick today, you know, 11 years later. So I got to fulfill my own fantasy of a civil war because of this. <laughs> and because of the civil war, there's no 9-11, there's nothing. It's just America fighting America. And uh, it's been going on for years by the time Brill uh, begins recounting the story. Yeah. I, I saw an interview you did with uh, an uh, Israeli journalist uh, ahead of Obama being uh, elected. And you said there that you didn't think that he was going to be elected because America was too racist still, but yeah. you wanted to be surprised. Well, I'll tell you, I probably gave that interview before September 08. Because everything turned, McCain was ahead, and he w it looked like he was going to win until the economic collapse came. And then uh, suddenly nobody wanted McCain. It, it became impossible to support this Republican right-wing person. And that's when the tide turned and Obama took over. If it hadn't been for the economic collapse, I don't think Obama would have won. 
So I'm not, I don't think I was wrong about my prediction. I just didn't know that suddenly something so cataclysmic would change the, the whole reality of the United States. You uh, wrote an article uh, on the um, one year after the uh, September the 11th, uh, 2001, uh, where you mentioned the, the prospect of an attack on Iraq. Then you turned out to be right. Yeah, well, this was the thing. New York Times uh, asked me to write an op-ed piece uh, about the one year after 9-11. But, so, but I wrote it, uh, it was late July. It was pretty early because um, they wanted it, you know, early. And talk of more, talk of invading Iraq was in the air at that point, which seemed to me absolutely crazy. I mean, what did that have to do with anything? Nothing as far as I could tell. Um, so, I said, if we do this, it looks like a global disaster in the making. I, and and uh, Now, how did I know this? I don't know anything. I'm, I'm not an expert in weapons of mass destruction. I wasn't an inspector. But I, I knew that this was a bogus argument that the Bush administration was trying to ram down the throats of the American people with a propaganda campaign that was uh, worthy of Joseph Goebbels, I'll tell you. They really sold the American people a bill of goods. They lied and lied and lied, and they even got Colin Powell to go in the UN and talk about this stuff. Remember the tubes? You know, Colin Powell is a pretty decent man. He was so disgraced after that. He really hasn't shown his face in public ever since then. I mean, it was the destruction of of a man's career. They made him do this. And, um, and then America launched into the single worst strategic move the country's ever made. And, um, you know, tens of thousands of people have been killed. And uh, all kinds of money has been lost and to no purpose whatsoever. And we're still there, you know. Uh, we're not actively fighting anymore. But we have troops there, and we're spending money, and Iraq is not a stable, thriving country. So I ask you, why did I know this in 2002 and uh, nobody else? And the other thing that was so crazy was that supposedly intelligent people, even people from the center and the left, accepted this. They got excited about uh, overthrowing Saddam Hussein and establishing democracy in Iraq as if it's like pulling a switch and you could do it overnight. Um, they've all recanted. They've all written books. They've all written articles saying how wrong they were. And I just wonder, why did I know and they didn't know? Because they're much more informed about everything. But if you, I guess if you're a real outsider, the way I am, I mean, you're just looking objectively. You don't have any ax to grind. You just want to sort of understand the truth, you can see more clearly than people who are involved in something. Maybe. What about uh, Obama's victory now then, killing uh, Osama bin Laden? <laughs> well, I didn't feel like jumping up and down and cheering, I can tell you. But I understand why people wanted to do that. Um, well, it's going to help him, and I, I'm, I'm fairly convinced now that he's going to win re-election, and I felt that all along. Even though the right wing is 
pushing and pushing and pushing, and again, you know, spreading lies. The propaganda machine is enormous in America. And still 25% of Americans think that Obama is not an American citizen, wasn't born in the US. <laughs> and what they're really saying is, I'm a, I'm a racist and I hate black people and I don't want a black man running my country. And he doesn't belong there, especially with that name. And um, um, well, too bad for them. He won and I think he's gonna win again because the Republicans have nobody of any quality to run against him. And I think once the campaign starts, he'll go into some high rhetorical mode that will just blow everybody out of the water. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The New York Trilogy. Yeah. A lot of people read that still. Yeah, I, I've forgotten all about it. It's so old now. <laughs> you gotten a chance to forget it? Probably not. Uh, yeah, I, I just simply don't think about it. But I know, I, I was signing books before I came here, and uh, that's still the book that uh, people buy the most. It is? Still. Yeah. What does that tell you? I don't know. I don't know. That's, 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 that's the thing that, uh, I, I suppose, allowed people to discover me. So my name is somehow connected to the, those three little books. Uh, which is fine. It's better to have that than nothing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it started with a, a small event in your own home with a telephone, right? Yes, it's true. And I wrote about it later. Um, I was writing my first prose book, The Invention of Solitude. So we're talking about 1980. And the telephone rang, I picked up, and the man on the other end said, hello, hello, is this the Pinkerton Agency? And the Pinkerton Agency is a famous detective agency in the United States. They've been around for a long time. I said, no, no, you have the wrong number, and I hung up. Next day, same man, same call, hello, hello, is this the Pinkerton Agency? And again, I said, wrong number. I hung up, but as I hung up the second time, I said, why didn't I say I was the Pinkerton Agency? <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting to find out what this guy's problem was and maybe get involved in the case in some way, right? <laughs> and I kept waiting for the phone to ring a third time, but it never did. <laughs> and that started City of Glass. So I, I made up this character, Quinn, who gets a call for the detective, Paul Oster, <laughs> but he gets the third call. And the third time he says, yes, I am Paul Oster. And then all the craziness begins after that. But if people get those kind of telephones, what should they do then? The telephone calls? I, I would not advise anybody in any way. You're all free agents to uh, lead your own lives. And far be it from me to um, tell you what to do. But do you see the New York trilogy as a work where you succeeded with the things that you tried to do? You know, it's funny, I don't think about things in those terms. It's just, it's behind me, and I, I, don't, I don't think about it. Um, I have a, a good friend who's a, a great novelist, uh, John Kotsia, you know, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And he's written a lot of books, and, and we were talking about this very thing a couple of years ago, and he said, 
you know, the things I did, I feel like they're little packages I just leave on the road and then I, I keep walking on and I, and I never look back at them. I just walking ahead and I, I feel the same way. That um, what I did back then, it's fine, but I'm not living in that moment anymore. I'm always trying to think about what I want to do now or tomorrow. And uh, I don't see how there's any other way really to, to consider your work. It's for everybody else to talk about it or think about it. And in a way, uh, one hopes books are forever so that it won't date, it'll still be readable 100 years from now, and I won't even be here to think about it. And, um, but as far as my own life goes, no, I, there's no reason for me to think about the past. Concerning the, the future of the book, you've been in this friendly dispute with uh, Philip Roth. I found some small uh, videos on the net where, where, where you're commenting on his suggestion that the book is almost about to die. Yeah. But you're not of that opinion. No, no. And I, 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 I know him and I like him very much and I respect him, but I think he is a bit overly pessimistic about it. Maybe if you give him the Nobel Prize, he'll feel better, you know? <laughs> I think he's, he's sitting there in New York waiting for it to happen. And I think he's, he's losing heart. And uh, so I think his life is very much in the hands of Swedish people right now. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, he's 78 years old. It's, yeah. The time is getting short. Anyway. Um, he looks we, very healthy, though. Yeah, he is. He is. I, Swims every day, almost. I, I saw think. him recently. We had a very amusing dinner. Um, but even more interesting about Philip Roth, um, we got involved in this hoax in Italy. I don't know if you know about this, the De Benedetti scandal. Um, this is fascinating. There's a journalist, a young guy in Italy, who um, it was finally revealed had been inventing. Uh, interviews with writers and publishing them in regional newspapers all over Italy. <laughs> so there was Roth, there was Cozia, there was me, there were 20 other people. Uh, and it was finally uh, discovered that every single one of them was a, was a fake. And um, so Roth is very funny about this because he said uh, he heard that De Benedetti is now going to publish them as a book. And he wants Philip to write the preface. <laughs> That's uh, crazy. Yeah, why anyone would go to the trouble of inventing interviews with writers. Uh, but there you go. But have you read the interviews that were done with you? Yeah, and I, because I, uh, um, it was a friend of Philip's, uh, Judith Thurman, who's a journalist. Uh, she was the one who uncovered this. And so she sent me uh, one or two articles that I had supposedly, uh, interviews that I had supposedly done. And I could read Italian. I started reading it and I said, no, I, I didn't do it. When, when I saw myself comparing New York City to a woman, I knew I hadn't said those <laughs> words, right? Said that in the donna, New York, right? <laughs> 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 but just one last thing about Roth, because um, I, was, I was telling someone just the other day, uh, the last time I saw him, we were talking about Newark. You know, we were both born there. I didn't grow up there, but I lived there for some of my life. But he grew up there, as everyone knows. 
I told him, do you remember a place called Sid's, which was a place for hot dogs? And I remember going there as a little boy, and it was a very exciting, lively place with hot dogs, steamed, boiled hot dogs in water with lots of steam coming out. And he said, do I remember Sid's? I worked there when I was in high school. <laughs> and suddenly I had this flash that, I think he's 14 years older than I am, that maybe one day I went in as a little boy and Philip Roth gave me a hot dog. <laughs> and it kind of makes me feel good. <laughs> I just tried to figure out what a hot dog could do, but... Uh... Yeah. Well, when you're four years old, they're really delicious. Yeah. yeah. We'll look back once more. Sunset Park. Well, it's looking back and it's coming forward here too, I guess in the, in sometime in the fall. Um, what do you want to talk about in terms of Sunset Park? I want to talk about, I think it's uh, in Morris uh, Heller's words, mm. writers should never talk to journalists. The interview is a debased literary form that serves no purpose except to simplify that which should never be simplified. He's right. <laughs> but the fact is, as a writer, you have a certain relationship with your publisher. And you know that the publisher is trying very hard to do the best they can for your work. And um, I think, in a way, it's very selfish not to participate every once in a while in these kinds of things, um, even if it is a bit of a compromise with your principles, um, I think that it's, it's necessary to show good faith and not to be uh, uh, pompous about it. So, But are you beyond getting a kick from an audience that loves you? Beyond getting a kick? You know, I don't do it very often. It's not as though I'm doing this every week. Uh, and I, I've been enjoying it tonight. It's, it's fun talking to you and <laughs> listening to people laugh particularly. Yeah. That's good. Because it's a solitary life, of course, being, uh, being a writer. Yeah. And yeah. you go away, not every day, but some days a week to a small apartment, isn't that so? Every day, yeah. Uh, little, little apartment in the neighborhood, just a few blocks from our house, and that's where I work. It's very quiet, uh, Spartan. There's nothing to do there but, but work. And um, I hope to keep doing it as long as I can walk down the street and climb up those stairs, you know, it's... Uh, but I read somewhere that you don't have as many ideas as you used to have for new novels. <laughs> well, the thing was, when I was younger, I had a whole backlog of ideas. And I had been sketching out different novels in my head. So whenever I finished the novel, I knew what I wanted to write next. But a moment came when I didn't have any more f ideas for the future. So the last four or five books I've just pulled out of the air, so to speak. I've had to wait a long time between books, and then um, something begins to develop, and then I have gone into it. And I think that's how most writers work. I just was lucky for a while that I had this surplus of material in my head, and it gave me some kind of confidence that I knew what to do next. Because this is a big problem with writing. You write the book, 
um, you know, you're completely engaged and you're doing it every day and then suddenly you're over and then you have to say goodbye to all the characters you've been living with and on top of that you're unemployed and uh, it's hard to know how to fill that time, um, especially because I, I don't have a job anymore, I'm, I'm just writing, I don't have other kinds of work. So, um, you know, I do a lot of reading, a lot of thinking and walking and watching films and watching baseball games and just trying to keep myself open to whatever might happen next. But what kind of uh, mood do you have then? Are you happy or is it a bad temper or what did you say? I'm okay. Slightly depressed, but not deeply depressed. <laughs> I used to get more depressed after I finished books when I was younger. But I'm really moving into another phase of my life. I'm not worried anymore about anything. I, I really don't, I don't fret. I feel, you know, I've written 16 novels, what, about 25 books. If I never write another one, uh, you know, the world is not going to stop. It'll go on. And um, so I feel that I've done my work and anything I can continue to do is just a, a plus and, you know, try to do it as well as I can. So I'm in a different position towards my own life than I was, say, 20 years ago. Mm. Let's talk a little about the, the happy topic of aging. Uh, I know that you participate in a, uh, in a new documentary uh, or we, uh, where you talk about aging together with a British actress, isn't that so? I haven't seen it, you haven't even seen no, it yet. No, no, it's, uh, everyone knows, Charlotte Rampling, everyone knows her, right? The, uh, British actor, but she lives in France. She makes French and English movies. Uh, I know we've become friends over the last five or six years, and she was uh, making a film for a German production company, I think. It might be Arte, but it might be something else. A kind of self-portrait uh, through uh, talking with other people. And uh, so she, I think there's seven people that she talked to, and each one on a different subject. The one we talked about was aging. We're about the same age. Uh, but to tell you the truth, I don't remember what we said, and I haven't seen the film, and I don't know how they edited it, and I don't really know anything about it except that it's done. I saw her in Paris last week. She seemed very happy and was going to go to Cannes for, for the opening of the film. And I hope it's great, and I hope uh, she's happy. That's all. Yeah. But what did you say about aging? Then? I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> you don't look back. I no, you don't understand that doing an interview is uh, it's, it's one of the strangest forms of conversation possible. You know, someone is throwing questions out at you, and you don't know what to say, and, and so you cling to a word, and they say, all right, I can say that. You know, I don't have to sit there for five minutes in silence as everyone stares at you, or the journalist stares at you, and you feel relieved, and you get the words out of your mouth, and then it's the next question. And then you've forgotten what you said. I mean, I, I can't even remember what we said earlier tonight. No, I don't and so either. How could I remember what I said to Charlotte a year ago? I don't, I don't know. That's true. But real conversations in life, I remember very vividly things that friends say to me and things, but, but uh, being questioned by uh, someone in an interview is, is a different human experience. Mm. 
But what ought to happen then for you to remember it? What, in an in a interview? Yeah. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think the form allows for remembrance. I, I, I don't think it's possible. Um, we could go out later and have dinner and talk at the table, and I might remember everything you say, because then we're talking as equals. Mm. Um, you might all join. Yes. <laughs> but here, you know, you're Mr. Q and I'm Mr. A, and it's, uh, it's, it's a different relationship. So when yeah. you called Siri later today, you say, yeah, yeah, I guess it went all right. Yeah, well, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you get the idea of writing uh, a book about uh, people taking uh, an empty house? Uh, I don't know. There it was. Again, I, I, I can never answer this question, where books come from, why. But did, did you possible. go to a place in Brooklyn and you, you saw this house? I just, I, you know, I was very just, the Sunset Park we're talking about now, which is the first book I've ever written, which is about now, with a capital N. Uh, so the whole thing takes place from around November 2008 into the spring of 2009. It's a very short period. And I was writing it in, uh, let's see, in late 2009. So just months after the events, and it's also the first novel I've written with uh, multiple perspectives, points of view. I mean, I'm, I jump from character to character in this book. Not that this is anything original. Uh, novelists have been doing this for hundreds of years, but I've never done it. And um, uh, so the book uh, is, ultimately it's about houses, physical houses, and then homes you know, the idea of family. And we have that interesting double uh, thing in English, house and home. And uh, um, so many people have lost their houses in the United States in this uh, mortgage crisis. Uh, it's, it's an epidemic, it's, it's a horrible tragedy. And, and then on top of that, the tremendous crisis in unemployment which is another horrible tragedy. And suddenly people are in terrible shape. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to talk about this. I, you see, I've been thinking for years. Okay, this is a, now, now I'm, I'm remembering exactly how this thing developed. For years I've been thinking about dispossession and somebody just getting thrown out of the place where he lived. Um, but I wasn't thinking of it in terms of uh, uh, you know, society at large. It was just going to be the story of one person losing his place. And as I was thinking about this story, suddenly um, the housing crisis happened in the United States, and I realized, well, the little character I'm thinking about is millions of people. And I have to approach this from a different angle altogether. So the book, which maybe some of you read in English by now, uh, and then later in Swedish, uh, it begins. I could just say the beginning is about a young man who's living in Florida, southern Florida, which is one of the worst places uh, in this housing mess. And he's working as something called a trash-out worker, which is a very ugly term for what is finally a very ugly job. People lose their houses, the banks take over, they kick the, the former owners out, 
And uh, often these people are devastated, angry. They might, you know, uh, vandalize the house to some degree. They often leave things behind. They don't have a big enough truck to put all their belongings in. I mean, I've been reading things about people leaving behind pianos and boats and all kinds of very expensive things. They just can't afford to take these things somewhere else. The trash out workers are hired by the bank. These are teams of men who come in and they clean up the houses so that the bank can get them in shape to sell to prospective buyers. But a lot of these trash out workers are stealing the things they find in the house, even though they're not supposed to. And my young man is uh, in one of these crews. And that, that's how the book begins. And it goes on from there. It's a pretty complex story. And uh, in the end, or not in the end, that's later in the, in the book, he winds up living in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Sunset Park, which is the title of the book. And it's a very poor, forgotten neighborhood in Brooklyn. Well, the fact is, I wandered around Sunset Park a lot because I thought this is the kind of place where you could be a squatter and maybe get away with it. Yeah, because that was my thought. Yes. I, I, I liked the thought of it being possible in New York yes. because I thought Berlin, okay, but even New York. That even was New so York. Nice. And I, I wandered around a lot and I found the place. And it was on a very little street, kind of isolated. There weren't many houses on the block and they were separated by a lot of space. There were vacant lots. And across the street was a cemetery, so there were no houses on the other side. And this house was a, a little wooden house. It looked like something from a farm in the Midwest. It didn't look like a New York City place at all. I was just fascinated by it. And I said, yeah, this is this, my young people. There are four of them living there. This could be it. I took a lot of pictures so that I would have it uh, uh, to refer to while I was writing about the house. And um, so I wrote the book, and it came out last November in the United States. And uh, right after the publication, uh, National Public Radio, NPR, wanted to do an interview with me about the book. And the journalist said, let's go out to Sunset Park and visit some of the places in the book. So fine. We go down the street where the house was that I took the pictures, and it had been demolished. It was gone. There was not a scrap, not a splinter, nothing. It was a vacant lot, absolutely gone. So the only thing left are those photos. Wow. Which is very haunting because Miles, the boy in the book, doesn't steal things. What he's doing is taking pictures of all the objects that have been left behind. And he wants this uh, photographic re record of these ghost-like things. And now I myself have a photographic record of a ghost-like thing. Strange. You know? Wow. Yeah. You see, I was all around Google Maps trying to find the house myself. Um, but I couldn't. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. It was, I can tell you, 34th Street between 4th and 5th Avenues. Mm -hmm. That's where it was. But no longer. Paul Oster, you've been talking to a lot of Swedes and in front of a lot of Swedes and one Norwegian. Uh, for hours and hours and hours. And I thank you so much for these two great books that we've been talking about most of the time today. Uh, and I thank the audience for uh, listening. Thank you very much. And thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>